Welcome to the Family Beacon Podcast from Minnesota Family Council with hosts Grace Evans and Moses Bratchard. Stay informed on the top stories on life, family, and religious freedom. Get the facts, stand for truth. Hello and welcome back to the Family Beacon Podcast. I'm your host, Moses Bratchard. This is a very special episode this week. Uh, Grace, unfortunately, is not able to join us today, but who is able to join us today is Renee Carlson, and Renee is the general counsel for True North Legal, which is a legal initiative of Minnesota Family Institute, and it is, I think I can say without fear of contradiction, one of the absolute most important things that we are doing right now. As you know, we're involved in all sorts of different, um, uh, all sorts of different initiatives to help advance life family and religious freedom in Minnesota. This is one of those initiatives. It's something that we've just spun up in the last few years, and it is, uh, I'm, I'm so excited for Renee to tell you more about it today. Uh, so that, that makes this a really special episode, um, and I think, I think you're going to enjoy it. I want to say before we get started, remember if you're on Apple Podcasts, if you love, if you love this podcast, the best thing you could do for us would be to leave us a five-star review. Tell us how much you enjoy this episode. And, uh, and and tell us what you like and give us oppor- an opportunity to do better. And that helps us get seen by more people. Same thing if you're on YouTube, click that like button, click that subscribe button, and click that bell icon so that you get a notification whenever we post a new episode. So without further ado, let's get into it. Renee, I'm so glad that you could join us in the studio this morning. I guess my first question is... Uh, what is True North Legal and what does it do? Right. Well, so glad to be here. Thanks, Moses, for having me. As you stated, True North Legal is Minnesota Family Council's newest initiative. Um, We're actually part of Minnesota Family Institute, and we will handle litigation, uh, policy matters, and education. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty broad. Mm -hmm. Um, We intentionally designed this entity to kind of hit each of those points kind of like a three-legged stool we feel like there's a completeness and a wholeness by being able to educate the public Mm -hmm. being able to engage in policy matters and then having the teeth of litigation and if we need to go to court right so specifically um in education we will be available for um presentations for distribution of materials and resources that are helpful. Mm-hmm. We've done some webinars here. I know you and I worked on some things with CAN last year in COVID. Right. But we just want to help our local Minnesotans understand what's going on. And I'm very passionate about helping people take these legal concepts and then distill them into simple concepts. Right. We really want to be able to um, create the narrative and speak into our cultural issues and have the confidence to do it. And I feel like people often um, hold back because they don't feel like they have the confidence or they don't have time to keep up. So we're hoping to really give people an opportunity to do that through our educational efforts. I I just think that's so important because you know, uh, it's sort of, it sometimes it sort of seems like lawyers run the world. <laughs> oh, well, this is great. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and you're one of them. No. And, 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 and sometimes those lawyers running the world are hostile to, uh, life, family, and religious freedom, unfortunately. Right. And so, and, and, and people, people do, I think, I think you said they feel intimidated. I think that's totally right. They feel that they don't, they just don't have, uh, they just don't have the information they need to say challenge something that they know is wrong, right. but but they don't have the, the 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 standpoint to challenge it. And so you providing that, I think, is just so crucial. And we've already seen that bear fruit. 
Oh, that's awesome. You know, and I think, too, just the, the compliment is, we, you know, here at Minnesota Family Council, we are a faith-based organization, and a lot of our constituents have values that, you know, we all embrace, specifically biblical values. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to put those two together to say that, yes, we know truth, but there's also scientific or legal substance to that just makes right. it all the more powerful. Absolutely. And it just, you know, makes us um, relatable to the world. It helps Mm -hmm. us. We need to be able to communicate in Caesar's world. That's where we live. So we're hoping (laughs) to do that. Um, With respect to policy, we have engaged much both um, on the front lines testifying and also behind the scenes, whether it's helping legislators and other municipal uh, municipalities, other government officials. Mm -hmm. Um, We engage in some drafting of legislation, and I also advise our policy director and others internally who engage um, on the front lines of policy here at the Capitol in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And then with respect to litigation, we have had some matters that we've engaged in um, collaboratively with other groups. We're helped defend churches. We're also engaged in some of the COVID issues right now, advising lots of employees um, and helping school parents understand their rights, students understand their rights. We're engaging in pro-life. Yeah. Um, there's definitely wow. a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when when cases come that need to be handled, um, we'll go forward with them. And we are creating a team to be able to have the resources to do that. That's that's so exciting. I, I, I mean, it's heartening just for me uh, as a citizen. Um, and I think, I, think, uh, I think that's wonderful. Speaking of... Not quite litigation, because thankfully it didn't uh, get this far. But can you tell us a little bit about how we helped, uh, how, how you helped uh, Pastor Mike uh, last year during COVID? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really um, a humbling project to be a part of, and um, it, it definitely had a, a wonderful outcome. So we have a pastor here um, in Chaska who was facing some discrimination. Um, their church was told during COVID that they could not host worship outside in their parking lot. Um, one of the only churches I've heard that actually faced that. Right. They had a ministry event that was going to be held outside that they've done annually, um, I think for 12 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a motorcycle ride mm-hmm. where groups of people come to... Sounds pretty COVID safe, I yeah. have to say. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's all outdoors. People were spaced out. And so what happens is people join the parking lot. They join, you know, six to 10 feet apart in a parking lot stall and then they all ride together and then they come back and then they have fellowship. But in this case, they are going to have, you know, fellowship is going to look different. It's going to be spaced out um, and all of the precautions. The church was very diligent about making safe precautions for themselves and for the community mm-hmm. and for the liability of the church. And when they asked for permission, they were told that, well, initially they wanted to go to a park, which they were, they were rejected. And then they wanted to do it in their own parking lot, mm-hmm. which and it was they were going to host a worship service prior, mm-hmm. and they were told that they couldn't. So um, we stepped in and helped the church understand what their rights are. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize at the time that we were helping that the implications would be tenfold, mm-hmm. because this ministry um, is actually um, a partnership with another ministry called John Just Ride. Mm-hmm. Um, and John is a gentleman who died in a motorcycle accident, I believe about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And his parents started a ministry in his honor because he just loved the Lord. And so um, together this church and John Just Ride hosts this event every year and they raise money donating to pastors in Africa so that pastors can cover more ground to share the gospel. Wow. So, um, you know, 
not being able to have this event was detrimental Mm -hmm. to the community here in Minnesota and also to those pastors in Africa who depend on these motorcycles and also to um, Cindy and John Just who do this again, you know, in remembrance and honor of their son. That's wonderful. So thankfully we were able to help out um, and there, there wasn't any sort of legal challenge. And that's why, you know, I mean, Sometimes you just need a lawyer to get in there and tell people <laughs> what their rights are. Right. So um, it, sometimes it's just not that hard. And, um, you know, not everybody has malicious intent or ill motives. Mm-hmm. We don't know the motives, but we know that what they were telling this church was wrong. And so we were there to step in and say, hey, these people have rights and they're allowed to have a worship service. Right. So um, I'm happy to report that the church was able to host and as a result, the ministry actually raised the most money they ever had wow. in a COVID year. And we're able to buy, I think it was 48 or 49 motorcycles and give them to pastors who are covering ground. So, yeah, I encourage anybody listening, check out John Just Ride. It's an mm-hmm. amazing ministry and um, see what you think. And again, very humbled to be a part of something That's like so that. That's so great. I, I, I think, you know, like it would be easy to think, I think, uh, going into this project that that you would be doing work that was a couple steps removed from like spreading the gospel, let's say. And and yet and yet what you were able to do led directly Mm -hmm. to the success of a ministry event, which led directly to these pastors in Africa being equipped to share the gospel. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just that's awesome. I love that. Um, so, so like, well, it was definitely, it was all God, you know, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it, uh, law- lawyers can do the Lord's work. <laughs> yes. That is a very- <laughs> That's wonderful. So Renee, um, uh, True North Legal has been, uh, has been, uh, um, a thing for a couple years now. Um, what is your background and how did you get involved with Minnesota Family Council? Yes. Um, well, I had funny story, but I started Actually, um, I'm not from Minnesota, so but my first job was working at Minnesota Family Council. I came here, <laughs> and I always, you know, I said, before I even realized what this meant for my life, I vocalized this interest in public policy and law specific to issues relating to family, mm-hmm. marriage, and life. And you wanted to do it in the best state in the union. Absolutely. <laughs> I wanted to do it where it gets a little too chilly for me. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Um, I mean, that's something that you share with native Minnesotans. It gets too chilly for, well, I'm from Wisconsin, but it gets too chilly for us too. Right. So being (laughs) from the West. And then we complain about it for six months. (laughs) Exactly. And then you become a very hearty person and very thankful. It does create a different kind of person. I I do. I do think so. Genuinely. Mm -hmm. And I'm, yeah, I'm very thankful to have the opportunity to be here with MFC and to be essentially back where I started. So I started here as an intern and then I worked for um, the Minnesota State Senate And at that point, um, the Lord had just showed me that law school was the path. Mm. And I felt um, a strong sense of, you know, justice and advocacy. And I know that kind of sounds cliche, Mm -hmm. but being in the being in the policy world, I felt like the law would help equip me even more for the things that I felt called to, especially Mm -hmm. in this arena and the deep nuances of constitutional law. So um, ended up going to law school. I don't think I've ever asked where you went to law school. I went to the University of St. Thomas. St. Thomas? Oh, okay. Yes. So locally. Great. Yes. And that was a fantastic experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's awesome. Yes. So I felt um, I felt like it was a personal experience, and I think that that's something that they do well there. So That's great. So so you you uh, you worked in Minnesota Family mm-hmm. Council many years ago, and then you were able to uh, go to law school, and then, and then and now you're back and doing yep. this amazing work. Um, 
and, and you spoke about having a, uh, having a calling uh, to be mm-hmm. a lawyer. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, you know, I, I actually ask myself, sounds silly, to articulate that um, in my own mind, probably weekly and monthly, because as you know, the stuff that we deal with can be really intense. Yeah. Um, it's, not, it's not typical results, and we're dealing with real people's lives. So in law school, I was able to do the Blackstone Legal Fellowship with Alliance Defending Freedom. And that also, yeah, I was very, um, very blessed to be able to do that and honored to be a part of that program. Mm -hmm. And that just solidified kind of this calling and the direction that I wanted to go. Um, And I worked for Professor Teresa Collette, who is the director of the University of St. Thomas Mm -hmm. Pro-Life Center and who I also co-counseled with on our amicus brief in Dobbs. So it kind of came full circle with that. That's wonderful. But yes, I just had these experiences that continued to show me this was the path. Mm-hmm. I did say that I would never do criminal law, and it ends up that my uh, first position was an assistant county attorney. Oh, man. So, <laughs> but it was definitely an experience that I appreciate. I worked both in the civil and criminal division okay. in um, two counties in Minnesota, mm-hmm. and both of those things had very transferable skills and helped me in what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. So, and I appreciate that, and I appreciate the opportunity to even understand what it's like to be in the criminal justice system. Yeah. Um, I probably wouldn't have been as sympathetic to things that I am now because of my exposure. It just helped me to um, understand, you know, people's place in life and that, you know, everybody has different circumstances. Right. And so I think that there isn't always one side to every story, but, um, you know, we need to consider all of the facts. Right. That's interesting. I, I think I've seen your prosecutorial background come through uh, in, in a way that's helpful and um, helpful to helpful to the work that you're doing now, which constitutional law, religious freedom advocacy, it seems like it's so uh, so distant. But you're saying not necessarily. Yeah, I think there's, you know, with, with all of the law, there's there's. A correlation and mm-hmm. I try to tell people this especially when I do presentations is that one case isn't necessarily an outlier especially when you're in you know if it's in your jurisdiction or if it's in a certain area of law but it's not one thing is not usually not isolated it mm-hmm. will most likely impact all other areas sure just as like a caveat I explained that the you know Roe v Wade started with cases well before that um, mm. I believe one of the foundational cases was even about child labor laws I mean, oh, really? much early on. But if you follow the trajectory, so, you know, you might have a case and you have no idea what's going to come out of it. Mm. So, again, it's good for people to pay attention to what's going on. A lot of people think that they can, you know, cabin an issue and say, well, if I don't engage, that's OK, because it's not going to have an impact. When, in fact, there's consequences down the road. And that's why right. you know, we care about. Yeah, um, that's so engaging. important. Yeah. Some people might think. Uh, that if something is a really important issue, legal issue, that it'll just eventually work its way up to the Supreme Court and be decided there. And that is how our court system, uh, you know, it works with the most with the most uh, tricky issues. But at the same time, the issues that that you're able to solve here at the local uh, level in municipal courts and uh, and uh, and in state courts, and even before things come mm-hmm. to court. I mean, coming mm-hmm. to court is uh, the last resort uh, in many cases. So that's uh, so, like dealing with those problems, those are the problems you don't necessarily hear about in the right. news. But it is just as important, if not more so, that those do get dealt with. Absolutely, I think sometimes, I mean, the best work that we can do is to 
not have to go to court, right. is to shut things down right away, whether it's sending a letter and, again, telling, you know, a, whether it's a corporation or a school or a government entity, another government entity, you know, politely reminding them, hey, <laughs> these are these are rights that you're infringing on. You're right. in violation. <laughs> and, you know, and, and a lot of times it just takes that. And, again, mm-hmm. I don't think that it's always ill motives, right. but some people just simply don't even know or right. they don't even realize. Right. So we're here to make sure that our local laws are followed and that we um, advance things when we need to. Mm-hmm. And again, that's something I very much appreciate about True North Legal. And again, our you know three-legged stool approach, we are local boots on the ground. I guess I have been here long enough to say I'm a Minnesotan. Yeah, and definitely. so, you know, we understand some of the local nuances, particularly in schools. Um, we might know our judges. And so we've kind of got a leg up when it comes to the local issues. And I'm excited about the growth of True North Legal being a, a local legal entity. That's so cool. And, and I know that many other people are excited about it. The response that we've seen is is just amazing. People are so grateful that we're doing this work. Great. So uh, we, we've talked about how uh, the, the success that you had last year with uh, Pastor Mike and um, – the Evangelical Free Church in Chaska. Right. Uh, what are some other of uh, uh, Trinity Legal's significant accomplishments since you came on board? Right. Well, most of the time that I've been on board has actually been through COVID. Sure. <laughs> I came on about six weeks prior to everything COVID. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we've had some <laughs> other, we, we've assisted other other churches, nothing rose to the occasion of um, the Chaska issue, mm-hmm. but just helping them to navigate, you know, how to consistently have worship, yeah. how to be able to continue to engage, and that they don't have to shut their churches down, right. making sure they follow proper protocol so mm-hmm. that they um, stay above reproach in, and can continue to um to, to hold worship services. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's been really satisfying. And, and I'm sure that's been helpful but, uh, because you are, in addition to being a lawyer, you are also a pastor's wife. Yes, I am. And so <laughs> I do, you know, I do think that that helps bring a unique perspective. Mm-hmm. I understand the context of ministry in a way um, that many other, many others probably don't. Right. Um, ministries are not businesses they run differently. You know, people don't check their faith at the door. It's not a nine to five thing. It's mm-hmm. a consistency. Yeah. And so there's a lot of that um, plays into just the internal operations of a church and sure. what's important and even how to make decisions um, and to understand that each church is unique. Mm-hmm. And so just like each believer is unique. Um, so again, you know, going back to COVID, I've, I've seemed to have been caught in the middle of that. Yeah. I'd say in the last couple of months, um, we've been helping a lot of employees who are faced with discrimination at work, um, who are having to, you know, file religious exemptions. And we've been walking people through those, right. giving consultations about that. And we've had a lot of success. It's, you know, it's really been exciting to see a lot of these exemptions being granted. Um, I think... What's been heartbreaking is to have phone calls from, you know, from fathers and from single mothers saying, help me, please. If I don't get this exemption, I'm going to lose my job. Oh, my goodness. You know, and so there's a there's a lot of that out there, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. And um, it's been really humbling to be able to walk alongside people and then satisfying to have them call or to have them email and say, I'm so thankful that True North Legal was here to help walk me through this, yeah. to help me understand my rights, to help me understand Title Seven. I mean, you know, yeah. now that just rolls off everyone's tongue. I think like <laughs> yeah. half the country is an expert on Title Seven right, now. Right, right. People so, are people are of necessity becoming yes. more familiar with these obscure uh, legal uh, legal doctrines. Right. I don't, don't want to say something uh, to our viewers. 
um, about Minnesota Family Council's position because uh, I've, I've had some messages saying that uh, we should just follow public health guidance and we should uh, advocate for vaccines. And we are not anti-vaccination at Minnesota Family Council. We have no positions on whether you should or should not get vaccinated. You should get vaccinated if you think it's the right decision for you. But what we do oppose is people, uh, employers and governments coercing people uh, against their sincerely held uh, conscience-based beliefs to get a vaccination that they disapprove of and that they that uh, has a various uh, moral questions and that maybe even they're worried about the safety of it. And for those reasons, we just simply believe they should not be forced to do that. Mm-hmm. Am I am I articulating that well? I mean, right. you're you're the one who uh, who knows this uh, this. You you know our stance much better than I do, even though I'm the communications director, because you're on the ground helping people. Right. Well, freedom of conscience is something that we should all be concerned about. Mm. So True North Legal uh, recently engaged in an amicus brief project for the United States Supreme Court. Uh, Which is so cool. Yes, we're very very excited about this. Mm -hmm. We really wanted to engage in Dobbs, and we were able to do that um, with the help of Professor Teresa Collette, her and I co-counseled on this brief mm-hmm. and um, are very proud of our work product, um, yeah. not only because it is something that we believe um, the justices should take a look at and gives them important information about abortion, mm-hmm. but it's also a tool that legislators can use and anybody that wants to read the brief can use if they want to be more informed about um, abortion and the destruction that it's caused mm-hmm. for society and for women and for young women. Uh, we're very excited That's that good. we partnered also um One of our clients is um, Advancing American Freedom, which is Mike Pence's new nonprofit. So his first sort of legal project um, was our brief. And we are very thankful and very proud to partner with them, as Mm -hmm. well as five other um, family policy organizations um, that joined our brief as well. That's so cool. Yeah, it's wonderful. Not only that we're able to partner with organizations like ours in other states, but also with a former vice president. I mean, that is cool. Very, very good accomplishment for uh, True North Legal. So so that brief, that amicus brief, is for the Dobbs v. Jackson case. Correct. Uh, and the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments on December 1st for that that's case. Right. And you will be in Washington uh, be while that's happening, which is so exciting. Uh, we have talked a lot about Dobbs v. Jackson on the podcast. Um, and however... We are, Grace and I are not uh, experts, (laughs) and I would love for you to tell us whether Dobbs v. Jackson, what's that going to do to our abortion law? Could it overturn Roe v. Wade? Well, um, I think that's the million-dollar question. Uh, Sure, yeah. yeah, Well, first, you know, just to make sure everybody watching understands and knows about Dobbs, I'm sure many people do, but just in case, I want to just give a little primer on that. So um, this is probably one of the most significant abortion cases that the United States Supreme Court will hear, um, maybe in my lifetime, depending on how long I live. So um, they will be looking at, they they will, because of the questions they have to answer, be taking a serious look at Roe and Casey um, and there is potential that those be those would be overturned, but this case is about a 15-week abortion ban. It was a law passed by Mississippi, okay. in which they said abortions after 15 weeks 
are not legal. And people challenge that, saying that it's unconstitutional and it infringes on the rights of on the right to abortion. Because the, the Roe standard is uh, that states can't regulate abortion before 24 weeks right. slash viability. Right. Okay. Right. So this obviously, you know, you know before that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, because the court has taken this on, they are going to have to tackle, you know, what does Roe mean? What does Casey mean? Mm-hmm. And, you know, honestly, I've wrestled with what's going to happen. What does that mean? Yeah. I think, you know, in the beginning, knowing that they were taking this case, I wasn't, and and with some of the decisions that have previously um, been made by this court, some of the, um, you know, incremental approach, I appreciate, but I think, you know, in the, the depths of my heart, I just want them to abolish yes, abortion. Abolish it. You know, but, <laughs> but you know, what, what are the implications of that? As I said, you know, each case, you know, bleeds into another. So what does that yeah. mean for everything else? And I'm not sure, um, you know, Honestly, I think, you know, the court could go in a lot of directions and we've got probably like 10 minutes for the rest of this podcast. Mm -hmm. So in short, um, you know, I've been following some legal scholars, Professor Robert George and Sharif Gurgis, um, and I am actually surprised that they are persuading me that perhaps um, there is something momentous coming down the pipe. Wow. Um, Because I don't think what, what they've what they've said and what I actually think is is pretty persuasive is that I'm not sure that the court has room for a middle ground okay that they would have to by the nature of the decisions of roe and casey actually have to get rid of them because um you know as sharif gurgis has said the the various things the court has to work with um in maybe setting up narrower standards would be standards would be something with respect to viability as you just talked about um, fetal pain, you know, and even the undue burden standard that Casey set out, which is basically, you know, if something poses an undue burden on a woman's right to get an abortion, then the law is unconstitutional. But he says, you know, unless the court plans to reaffirm Casey and maybe somehow narrow that down or create something new and still affirm abortion, then, you know, there's really nothing but to overturn Roe and Casey. And, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think with the current composition of the court, um, I'm not sure if there are five justices that want to reaffirm abortion that don't understand how destructive this precedent has been. You know, people have talked about stare decisis, meaning, you know, generally you just can't overturn precedent. But there's been a lot of briefs submitted and a lot of discussion about why Roe is really unworkable um, and lots of other reasons p- that are part of that analysis mm-hmm. um, in which the court may be persuaded that, you know, the decisions that they made in Roe and Casey um, just essentially don't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, wow. there's a lot of other things that they talk about. And that's not the only standard. And that's but kind of best possible scenario. It really is best possible mm-hmm. scenario. And then there's obviously all of the in-betweens. And I think after we hear oral argument, we'll kind of do the read the tea leaves and see, okay. you know, based on the questions they ask and make all these speculations. Um, but, you know, we've had 50 years of or so of this precedent. Yeah. And we've seen continuous destruction. Uh, we've also seen continuous confusion. Um, we also submitted a brief and co-counseled in that um, for the June medical case. And that's what we wrote about. We basically said lawmakers, no matter what side of the aisle are on, are really confused because we don't know what laws are going to be deemed constitutional or unconstitutional because abortion jurisprudence is really schizophrenic. Um, there's actually a law, law review article that is literally talks about that. So 
as you've mentioned, uh, this is uh, so exciting. Not only have you done armchair analysis on this case, and, and we're benefiting from the, from the fruit of your knowledge right now, but you have actively participated in this in the form of, a, of an amicus brief. So can you tell us what an amicus brief is and what arguments did we make uh, to the Supreme Court? Right. Well, an amicus brief is a friend of the court brief, and so you are um, you know, picking a position on a certain side, this side... Um, for us, we represent um, six family policy groups, including Advancing American Freedom, Minnesota Family Council, um, Iowa Family Policy Council, uh, South Dakota, Nebraska, and then um, Center for Political Renewal. So we okay. all teamed up, and we are all very passionate about families and how abortion affects families and the real implications of abortion. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I co-counseled with Professor Teresa Collette, mm-hmm. um, director of the University of uh, St. Thomas Pro-Life Law Center, mm-hmm. and we wanted to help the court understand the implications of, abor- of abortion at a deeper level and also bring in some empirical evidence. Um, we're not just saying things, we're actually supporting what we've said with some hard data. Mm-hmm. And so um, as a friend of the court, we're helping to supply the justices with information that they wouldn't get um, in the briefs that are um submitted on the merits. Mm -hmm. So we are talking about issues that are not talked about um, by other people. Mm -hmm. And each person that submits a front of the court brief takes a specific angle and basically it's, you know, it's like supplemental information. Mm -hmm. And we are really hoping that the court um, picks up our brief and gives it a good read and and finds it to be helpful because it is. Um, And I, I do have to say that we are also privileged to consult with Professor Lynn Marie Calm who is a law professor here. She has also done some tremendous work in this area on the implications of abortion in families. So this was a a, a collective effort in gathering this information together, not only explaining the law since Roe, but also what are those impacts. Mm -hmm. Um, We outlined five specific areas, and I have to tell you, I haven't committed them all to memory. So I may have to do a little bit of reading here. But... um, You know, we talked about five ways in which abortion has been destructive to society and has been destructive to families. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the first thing is that um, we know how abortion is destructive to women. Mm -hmm. And there's a relationship between um, abortion and declining family formation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know that abortion actually promotes some instability in the family. Mm -hmm. You know, just having uh, abortion access has really changed societal expectations um, about sexual relationships. And so we we have, in the brief, talked about how those expectations have contributed to the destabilization of family. I mean, when you just have sex readily available because you can go get an abortion, yeah. you know, people's mentality changes. Yeah. Um, we know from some of the work, I'm just reading here from, from Mark Regeneres, um, that having more sexual partners makes stable families, um, makes stable marriages and families more difficult to achieve. Mm-hmm. You know, and for many young adults, with sex available outside of marriage, many young adults see marriage as just like an encumbrance. Right. So it's no, it's you know, when you disconnect marriage and sex from childbearing, there's an entirely different mentality that you know just kind of undergirds society, and that's what we're seeing in with one respect um, to. With, with abortion, right. um, you'll you'll find this interesting, Moses, the political buff that you are. You know, even Janet Yellen, who is our current Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, mm-hmm. um, has written about this and noted this wow. in, in her article in, in 1996. She said, by making the birth of the child the physical choice of the mother, 
the sexual revolution has made marriage and child support a social choice of the father. Um, that's not a very healthy environment or wow. ethic if you want to foster family. Flourishing. I never thought I'd say this phrase, but based Janet Yellen. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, I have to admit that's probably one of our favorite quotes. That's you awesome. know, but I think that that just demonstrates that regardless of what side of the political aisle you're on, you can see that abortion impacts um, sexuality. Abortion impacts people's perception of you know what that means to a relationship Mm -hmm. and again it's these kind of undergirdings that are eroding the family Mm -hmm. and just and and eroding that stability and and children deserve that stability and and with abortion um you know if if it continues we're going to continue to see destabilization of the family right um you know we also noted that broad access to abortion is a contributor to devaluing women in the marketplace. You often hear the argument that we need abortion as women in order to survive, but in fact, um, by having abortion, we've created a culture of disdain for pregnancy because, mm-hmm. um, you know, after all, pregnancy is women's personal choice. Right. And as we noted in our brief, um, as well as you know, the, an, another brief that was just basically on the topic of the impact of of abortion on women and how it's not as liberating as. Uh, some people claim it is. Right. You know, we see you know pregnancy discrimination act passed that was you know supposed to help women, and yet we see women in all walks of life still being discriminated against for being pregnant. We've mm-hmm. seen this with Olympic athletes, stockbrokers, mm-hmm. law firm partners, bakers at Walmart. So you know this idea that abortion liberates um, is wrong. Again, mm-hmm. like I said, it creates a disdain for pregnancy and a, a social ethic that doesn't appreciate, you know, the natural biological consequences of being a woman. Right, and, <laughs> you know, it, and how we all got here. <laughs> exactly. It's almost like it's it's a punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so instead of, you know, accommodating women or finding women that are having to, you know, kind of pass all these hoops or, you know, the back door, I hope you're not pregnant kind of things. Right. So um, I don't see how that's liberating. No. So again, it's this pervasive ethic that abortion infuses into society that we all need to be aware of. And I think because we're so used to living in it, we don't often think, wait, abortion is a contributor to how employers respond to a woman that's pregnant. Abortion mm-hmm. is responsible for how, um, you know, young people that meet at a bar might think about casual sex. Right. You know, so again, it's these undergirds of like, what has abortion done to society? And when we go back to the court and think about precedent, we hope that the court considers the much broader implications of abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm not done. <laughs> so, <laughs> and there are more. Well, there is much more. So another consequence that we discuss in the brief is reproductive coercion. is when a woman is forced to get an abortion or even injured by her partner, um, which the partner knows may cause a miscarriage. Um, you know, we see that this in a lot with victims of human trafficking, mm-hmm. um, where they're denied prenatal care and forced to have an abortion. And as you know, I said, I'm sorry, I don't have this committed to memory, but you know, as we we note in our brief, um, the statistic that um, women experiencing reproductive, out of women who experience reproductive coercion, 75 percent ended an abortion, mm. and majority of those cases were due to the demands of the reproductive partners. Mm-hmm. So this isn't, again, a woman's choice. Mm-hmm. This is a partner forcing her because they don't like the consequence of pregnancy. Right. Um, you know, And again, research tells us that trafficking victims are much more vulnerable because they're um, susceptible to the lack of emotional connection that their handlers have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
if you don't have a connection to this child, what's it to you that you get aborted? And then you force this abortion on this person who you're already treating inhumanely. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, one of our favorite quotes is uh, from Professor Combe, and I told you about her law review article and her, her great work. But she summed it up brilliantly when she stated in her law review article, abortion is sometimes described as a man's solution to a woman's problem. That's amazing. That's just a mic drop quote. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, Grace isn't here today, but she's always talking about how abortion is anti-woman. And yes. I think that's it's so true. People get pro-life is wrong in this issue every time, every day of the week. They think that we're somehow the anti-woman group when, in right. fact, we are the people advocating for women, for the protection, not just of of women's health, women's safety, and women's right to determine their own existence, free from the coercion mm-hmm. of, the, as you say, mm-hmm. their the reproductive partners. And, and that's what abortion makes possible. Not right. freedom, but actually bondage. Exactly. And that was an, the point I was going to make, is that Casey and other abortion jurisprudence encourages this, you know, as if society has no duty or responsibility to women or their unborn children. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's, that's just so... Excellent. Like we we have made ourselves into a society mm-hmm. where uh, where abortion is a shortcut instead of doing the real and difficult work of right. making a society that is safe and positive for women and children. We we've uh, created a shortcut to it actually makes it unsafe cert- uh, for children, but also unsafe for women. Right. And a lot <laughs> harder. You know, when I was at the Supreme Court for June Medical, there was a lot of people giving testimonies about the medical consequences of abortion, mm-hmm. you know, perforated uterus and other things, you know, and that's very dangerous. Right. So, again, it's these, these consequences that have come with abortion that we're hoping the court will look at. Um, it's, you know, like I said, it's legally unworkable. From a policy perspective, it's unworkable. And just from societal good, mm-hmm. you know, we, we are exposing that in this brief. That it, abortion is not a societal good. And we also know that abortion impacts the role of parents. Um, and the jurisprudence on this is quite astounding. In no other area of law do we see the latitude given to youth and minors as mm. is given in the case of abortion through um, judicial bypass. And so um, what I'm talking about is the lack of um, parental consent Mm -hmm. needed to get an abortion. Um, Many states have parental notification and parental consent laws. Notification is simply making sure that the doctor does his due diligence in telling the parents or guardian of this child that a child wants to get an abortion um, or a minor wants to get an abortion. Um, And then consent would obviously be, you know, you need the parental consent. Mm -hmm. But there's something called judicial bypass where a judge determines um, by certain standards, including best interest, whether a minor should be able to obtain an abortion without her parents' consent. Mm -hmm. So this deprives the parents of due process. And it also deprives our daughters of their parents when she needs them most. I mean, when you're going in for surgery, you can't have a judicial bypass you know, to go get your appendix taken out. Right. I, mean, I had mine taken out in third grade. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I could, I did not have the capacity to make decisions about my physical and mental health on my own. Yeah. And so because the law has created um, this opportunity for young women, again, it's, they're, they're very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. They're susceptible, as we talked about, to, to reproductive coercion. Um, but they're also just susceptible to lifelong consequences that a young woman cannot comprehend. Mm. 
That's and that happens frequently in Minnesota, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. that's the state of play here. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that we we do. If correct me if I'm wrong, we do have a parental consent law. Parental notification. We have a parental yeah. notification, mm-hmm. but even that is traditionally bypassed in Minnesota. You can yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. That is horrifying, um, and I think. Oh my goodness! Uh, it, I, I think I, I just think it's just so clear. Like that's just it's just so clear to me, from what you're saying here, that um, that abortion has maybe this is too fancy a word, but negative externalities for the for our entire society. All of even those of us who never have participated in abortion, who oppose abortion, are negatively affected because abortion exists. Right. We as a society need to think about that. It isn't. It isn't about one person's individual choice because, as Renee has said, it's often about a, a choice that's coerced, mm-hmm. where a young woman is pressured by a boyfriend, let's say, and but it, but is able to judicially bypass any influence from her parents. Mm-hmm. They are completely mm-hmm. kept in the dark, but the boyfriend was more involved in the <laughs> commission of the of the act. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, it, and, and, and is in theory, you know, and we obviously it's so common uh, for for men to tell uh, women and girls, you can't do this. If you have this baby, it will ruin my life. That right. that type of thing. And abortion gives gives that narrative permission. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what enables that. And it's what enables that kind of disjointedness between men and women and what they're created to do together. Mm-hmm. The sanctity of life and the sanctity of marriage and just, you know. The, the purpose of that relationship one of those purposes is procreation yeah and so it just kind of thwarts all that when you have an ethos of death yeah you know i mean that's what this is yeah of course society is going to be impacted um when you start rallying around something yes. that is just vile to who we are mm-hmm. i mean and there is a sense of universal morality in which all cultures in all countries understand that you know death and murder is wrong and babies are good and yes and babies are good (laughs) and so you know we don't have to be christians to support that again there's a sense of universal morality in which that is well understood Mm -hmm. and and abortion is in direct contradiction to that and the irony is that you know some of the statistics we show is that you know even with a topic as sensitive as abortion um for almost 40 years over 70 percent of american um support parental consent and notification laws Mm -hmm. so you know it's it's not even that this is embraced by you know popular culture and you know even young people support this we have a poll i'm looking at here in 2005 of 1,000 high school seniors revealed that two-thirds believe that women under 18 should be required by law to get permission of a parent before she can have abortion there it is i mean that's pretty black and white so you know the youth themselves recognize i don't think i want to go this alone Yes. And there's nothing shameful or wrong about that. Right. Um, and, and I, as I shared, uh, you know, there's some other startling statistics here that I think that, that people might want to sit with here. Um, as I shared, abortion has long-term effects. And in a survey that we looked at, some of those long-term effects um, include 44% of women um, voice regret about their decision mm-hmm. to abort. Mm-hmm. 44% were depressed. 31% expressed feelings of loss. 27% have feelings of shame Ugh. and 13% have phobic responses to infants. Oh my god. You know, I'm just was imagining that in my head and that just does not look good. Yeah. Um and then 42% of these women, the adverse psychological effects of abortion endured over 10 years. So it's a consequential decision and I hope that everybody listening is now kind of, you know, 
um, stewing in this and understanding that we're not yeah. out there saying, hey, end abortion and, you know, take away this right. What we're saying is look at the deep impacts of abortion. Look how it has affected society. Look at the undergirdings. Look at the things we've talked about, reproductive coercion, the impacts on women in the workforce, um, the impacts on sexual relationships and mm-hmm. and responsibility and even um, reverence for the idea that men and women can, can create together. Yeah. Um, and then now the impact it has on parental relationships and minors, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's, it's overall destructive. And, you know, our fifth and, and final point in the brief is that um, Rowan Casey were a catalyst to increase sexual activity among minors. And, you know, that comes with its own consequences. I'm looking here, um, almost two thirds of adolescent mothers have partners older than 20 years old, oh, my goodness. which is just gross. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've heard stories in, in congressional testimony about this for years where young girls were coerced into getting an abortion and hiding a relationship with an adult man. Oh my goodness. I, mean, I can imagine how how just shameful you would feel and how violated yeah. you know you would feel. And um, we also note that the frequency of adult males impregnating teens um, is about 71% or over 33,000. So a survey of 1500 unmarried minors having abortions revealed that among minors who reported that neither parent knew of the abortion, um, 89% said that a boyfriend was involved in deciding or arranging the abortion, Mm -hmm. with 93% when the child was younger than 15. And it was further reported that 76% of of those abortions were paid for by the boyfriend. So again... Access to abortion opens up this door to, you know, increased teen sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that Planned Parenthood and not would, just teen sex, but the but it, it creates a it creates a market by which yes. adult men are able yes. to um, find to romantic prospects among high school students, exactly. and then and then are able to uh, to to pay a couple hundred bucks to make the problem go away. Exactly, exactly. And this does nothing. You know, as we you know just came out of you know a couple of years of intense Me Too movement and whatnot. Right. Um, how does this help to support women who are victims of rape? <laughs> it does nothing. It doesn't. It makes it, them victim all the more. Right. Oh my goodness, that's so, that honestly is so depressing. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I just I I'm the the bearer of uh, interesting news, not always good, yeah. but but. But staggering news and, and things that we just need to come to terms with. Mm-hmm. So I hope that, you know, people listening today, you know, will really think about these consequences and feel empowered. You know, when you want to talk to somebody about abortion, you're not talking about taking away something good. You can talk to them about the, the significant consequences and how this has invaded society mm-hmm. and all the impacts that it's had, you know, on women and parents and teens, you know, and even men. Yeah. Um, this this isn't just an isolated issue that we put in a corner. It's something, as you said, you know, impacts everybody. Right. And so, you know, our intent with this brief, again, was to be able to provide that information, not only for the court, um, but we hope that it's useful to um, legislators across the country and as well as others who are champions for the life movement that want to be more informed and see the empirical data that shows you're right. Life is the way to go. Man, that is, that is... Well, that's that's a hopeful note to end on. And I think I just I love I, I think I, I read the brief. I made a few tiny little edits um, and and yes, your uh, grammar is very <laughs> and, and that that just makes me very feel helpful. Good your, that, your that maybe eye. one piece of my grammar made it into a Supreme Court brief. <laughs> but I think 
I think the really amazing thing is that that like uh, I, I just I just have this feeling that if it's not Dobbs, it's the next case mm-hmm. or the next case that we are at a tipping point or that it's or that it's people that want to step up and say, you know, I'm going to run for office. I'm mm. pro-life and this is my initiative. Yes. Um, and that the people of Minnesota, I mean, this really comes from the boots on the ground level what yeah. do the people think about things and that's even you know why the supreme court takes up certain cases right that's why they had to hear the marriage case because right. they thought that the people were ready and so i think we underestimate our you know power of the people a lot of people think that they're not heard or that their voice doesn't matter but the narrative that is populated the most seems to be the narrative that wins mm-hmm. so we need to be the ones that populate the narrative mm-hmm. we need to be the ones speaking into this speaking accurately and speaking truthfully, and we will have an impact, a yeah. positive impact. Oh, man. And, it, and it isn't just Bible thumping. It no. isn't It isn't putting our religion on people who don't agree with I didn't quote any of the Bible it. today. <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> I don't think I quoted any of the Bible no, today. No, no, you did not. Like, the, the, the argument that you're making, I think, is just, it, it's something that, as you say, people in countries that have no concept of Christianity. They agree with this. They understand this uh, instinctually. And you you talked about kind of a natural law argument for Mm -hmm. just what human society is and how abortion cuts at the root of of what that is. Right. So uh, as we come in for a landing, uh, I just think I think this is one of the most significant episodes of the podcast that we've had so far because the Dobbs case is crucial. Renee's work uh, helping Minnesotans uh, is crucial. And I want to say on that note, if you want to get more information about what we do, go to truenorthlegal.org and get more information. And also, if you or someone you know uh, has um, requires confidential legal assistance uh, on issues relating to life, family, religious freedom, that's what we're here to do. And there's a form on the website where you can confidentially uh, submit a request that we would, uh, that specifically that Renee would review. And I I urge you to do that. And this is, this is the time that uh, this, like there's going to be more, not fewer uh, of these, of the, of these needs, especially as we've discussed with the vaccine mandates. And so I'm just, I I just, Renee is worth twice her weight in gold. Uh, Not, not for our organization. Welcome on the podcast for the compliments. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Not just for, not even for our organization, but just for all the people that you've already been able to help in this role and for the people who we know you're going to be able to help in the future. And so I'm so grateful, Renee, that you've been able to join us uh, today on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you, Moses. And thank you for your work. Oh, well, uh, well, I'm, I'm just here behind the microphone every week. We are a team here at Minnesota (laughs) Family Council, True North Legal. That's true. That's true. And uh, so I hope this has been helpful to everyone, everyone watching and listening. Remember to leave a review. We'd love to see those reviews. Remember to hit that bell icon so that you get a notification whenever we post on YouTube. This has been the Family Beacon podcast where you can get the facts so that you can stand for truth. Thank you so much for watching. Thanks for listening to or watching this episode of the Family Beacon podcast from Minnesota Family Council. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you're up to date on life, family, and religious freedom. You can follow us on Instagram at MN Family Council and subscribe to us on YouTube to watch our content. Get the facts, stand for truth. Mm-hmm.